Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Michelle Goldberg. I'm Frank Bruni. And this is The Argument. This week... Will a third-party candidate propel President Trump to another four years in the White House? Ross is still on leave, so Michelle and I asked Liz Mayer to come on the show. Liz is a Republican strategist who has some thoughts on Justin Amash and whether he's a bigger threat to Biden or to Trump. I just think that the majority of voters like that, in my experience, they're probably not going to be swinging any actual elections. Then, Zoom. The video conferencing platform is where we're working and socializing these days. It's a godsend, but maybe also a soul killer. I feel like every new technological innovation, my reaction is always, why would anyone ever do that? We want to give the American people more choices. This is about democracy. It's about representative government. Last week, Michigan Congressman Justin Amash announced that he's considering a presidential bid as the Libertarian candidate. Since then, Democrats and never-Trump Republicans have been in a panic. They're worried that Amash, who changed his affiliation from Republican to Libertarian last year, could re-elect Trump by siphoning just enough support from Joe Biden. But the impact of third-party candidacies isn't easily measured or predicted, whether we're talking about Amash this year or Gary Johnson and Jill Stein in 2016, or Ralph Nader in 2000, could Amash actually do as much damage to Trump as some fear he could do to Biden? Is the real, larger issue whether voters who dislike Trump will fall in line behind Biden or stay home, no matter how many options are on the ballot? Michelle and I have asked Liz Mayer to help us figure it out. She wrote a terrific piece in the Times about the threat of Amash and what she called the head exploding it's causing on the right and the left. Liz is a political strategist. She supported Gary Johnson in 2016, and she has worked for Republicans as disparate as Rick Perry, Carly Fiorina, and Rand Paul. Liz, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, I apologize in advance if you can hear some additional noise in the background. There seems to be somebody who has decided to break lockdown and go and mow their lawn in a very noisy fashion. <laughs> well, thanks for warning us. So what do you think about Justin Amash's candidacy? I think overall, Justin Amash's candidacy is more likely to hurt Trump than it is to hurt Biden although we are still talking about this in the month of May, and there are clearly many months to go until November, and it's hard to predict what the election overall is going to look like at this stage. There are two things here. First of all, having worked for Gary Johnson, there's a certain amount of sort of, well, not for his campaign, but I should say in support of him. Um, there's a certain amount of, I would say, more inside hands-on information that I have uh, regarding what happened in 2016 and who he pulled votes from. Um, and I think that that's indicative here because, first of all, we have Amash possibly running on the libertarian line, same as Gary Johnson. But also Amash is probably on social issues a little bit further to the right of Gary Johnson. 
So there are a number of things that I think people need to be looking at here. So when you look at Amash, you know, Amash is somebody who is more socially conservative than Gary Johnson. That suggests that he's probably not going to be quite as appealing to people who would otherwise vote for Joe Biden, um, who maybe are more socially liberal, probably is going to more, be more appealing to people who perhaps really dislike Trump, but don't like the Democratic Party's leftward shift with regard to abortion in particular. Um, and I think that you're going to see that he will pull more from Trump than he will from Biden. Michelle, is your take the same or do you have more concerns? I mean, frankly, I think Liz knows more about this than I do, right? I'm I'm much more concerned about spoiler candidates on the left. Um, I'm very worried that there's going to be another big Green Party vote this time. I think you can see a lot of people on the left talking themselves into the idea that the differences between Biden and Trump are negligible or that it's somehow kind of morally suspect to try to decide between what you view as the lesser of two evils. I mean, I cannot believe it's happening. You know, whether what's happening online translates into the real world is always um, anyone's guess, right? If what was happening online was the real world, then Bernie Sanders would be the Democratic Party nominee right now. Uh, Although you do see some in the same way that I think the kind of left left wing antipathy towards Hillary Clinton made people a little bit more hesitant to express strong support. You know, it's why you had all those secret Hillary Clinton groups. I think you might see kind of a similar phenomenon, which is a real problem when Joe Biden already has um, kind of enthusiasm problems. So that's what I'm really, really worried about. But I guess my question for Liz would be, you know, I could I can understand Gary Johnson pulling more from Trump than from um, Hillary Clinton in 2016. But I guess my question is whether we're in an analogous situation, right? Trump has really proved himself to a lot of people on the right who were suspicious of him in 2016. And also my impression, although I could be wrong, is that Joe Biden is more acceptable to anti-Trump conservatives than Hillary Clinton was. And so I'm wondering, are the dynamics of 2016 transferable to 2020? I mean, no election is 100% transferable to another. So I think your point is well taken. Um, But a couple of points I would make about this. Yes, I think that there are people who didn't support Trump in uh, 2016 who will be voting for him this time around. Um, Some of them include, at least as stated, Eric Erickson, um, you know, very prominent conservative, um, evangelical conservative, uh, somebody who has a radio show and a lot of influence, right? Um, You have people like that who have stated that they will vote for Trump this time around. Um, They will not be voting for a Democrat. They will not be voting third party. So they definitely exist. Um, The counterpoint to that is, as we saw in the 2018 election, there were pretty clearly a lot of, I would say, uh, white suburban women who in 2016 were prepared to cast a vote for Trump because they just were so not sold on Hillary Clinton, right? She was such an unlikable candidate. They just couldn't get there. They thought they'd take a chance. And in 2018, they migrated to voting for Democrats in a lot of House races and some Senate races too, right? So I think when you look at that, it's very clear that Biden probably has a whole bunch of voters who 
you know, perhaps in 2016 had been on the other side. He also has collected votes from a bunch of never Trumpers who have not been able to persuade themselves to get on board with the president. So I think he's got he's got more to play with there. So we've been talking about Justin Amash in terms of Gary Johnson, but if there was a third party candidate in 2016 who made a difference in terms of hurting Hillary Clinton, the argument is that candidate was Jill Stein in in all three of the states, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, that handed the Electoral College to Trump, Jill Stein got more votes than was the difference in votes between Clinton and Trump. Michelle, you mentioned that you're more concerned about that kind of challenge from the left uh, to Joe Biden in 2020. Do you see that happening and a candidate emerging? And do you think that could make a difference? Well, I mean, the candidate, I guess, is is it Howie Hawkins, who the Green Party is going to nominate? I mean, I, I actually don't think that the particular candidate matters so much as much as a determination to vote green. We're all stuck at home, which makes it harder to report these things out. That said, I do see, you know, a lot of people, people I wouldn't expect, you know, making the kind of I won't vote for the lesser of two evil arguments that you saw a ton of in 2000 that I had always thought 2000 would have cured the left of that forever. Um, You saw a little bit of it in 2016. And again, I'm astonished that you're seeing it again. I think that it's going to be up both to the Biden campaign, you know, with their VP pick and with some policy concessions and also with the leaders of the left to kind of nip this like electoral nihilism in the bud, but you do see it out there. Liz, do you think it is possible this is still debated? I was just refreshing my memory by going and and reading stuff from both 2016 and more recently. Do you think there is any argument to be made uh, that Jill Stein had a consequentially negative effect on Hillary Clinton four years ago. Um, and Michelle just mentioned 2000. Are you uh, of the belief or not that Ralph Nader may have handed that election to George W. Bush? Well, I certainly think in 2016, Jill Stein being on the ballot and people voting for her to the extent that they did didn't help Hillary Clinton. Um, but I would also suggest that people go and take a look at a piece that I wrote at the Bulwark that talks about third-party candidates, um, because I I think that the evidence isn't quite as clear-cut, perhaps, as what we're making it out to be. Um, I'll also say, though, that in general in politics, I think there is a tendency for a lot of political commentators and uh, people who write and cover politics to think about this in terms of people's philosophy and in terms of people voting for particular policies as opposed to or personalities. And Actually, the data that I have seen and my personal experience has suggested that's exactly the opposite. People have much more a tendency to pick a sort of avatar and then conform their position and their electoral behavior to fit that avatar than they do to voting on policy in a way that, you know, perhaps the three of us do and is a very rational and logical way of doing it. But that's just not really how most voters behave. I've heard some rumblings that some people on the Trump team think that it would be helpful if they could get Jesse Ventura to run as uh, possibly the Green Party nominee instead. I actually think that's a guy who pulls quite a few Trump voters who might be disaffected uh, coming out of this COVID-19 crisis. Hey, Liz, Liz, when we talk about third party candidacies in general and swinging elections, Aren't we chasing answers that we can never really get our arms around? And and what I mean by that is 
we're often looking back and saying, okay, if those voters hadn't voted for Jill Stein, who did they say they would have voted for as a second choice? But we don't know that they would have voted, right? They might have stayed home. We don't know if they would be true in their behavior to what they're saying. So we never, ever really definitively know what the impact of a third party candidacy is, do we? I think that's true. And I think that's true with a lot of polling in general. I mean, what you're what you're saying is you're putting a lot of faith in data when at the end of the day, people don't actually always answer questions honestly. Right. I mean, one of my favorite examples of this is there's a particular um, there's a particular individual I know who considers himself a Republican. And when you were when we were in, I guess it was 2009, 2010, for some reason, he ended up being on the call sheets of a bunch of pollsters who were asking questions about Obama and birtherism. This guy absolutely, absolutely does not believe that Barack Obama was born in Kenya and is not a natural born citizen. But just for cranks, every time he got one of those questions, he would absolutely say, Obama's a Muslim, he was born in Kenya. And you know, I don't want to say that polls are always off because you have cranksters like that, but I, I do think that there is always an issue with people providing accurate data and accurate answers to pollsters. But yes, I, I think I think you're right. I think it's hard to extrapolate from people's, oh, well, who would have been your second choice? You know, that's sort of an answer. I think it's hard to extrapolate what really would have happened if you hadn't had somebody on the ballot. Michelle, I want to go back to something, a phrase that you've used, I think, a couple of times, which is the lesser of two evils phrase. And one of the concerns I have when someone like Justin Amash steps forward and when the media gives him as much attention as we're giving him, and I think maybe it's even a little too much, is that it sends the message, and this is in part Justin Amash's very message, that those other two main party candidates are so very flawed. And that that really quickly and easily morphs into those other two main candidates from the big parties are equally flawed. And like you, my head explodes at the idea that there are Americans saying that Biden and Trump are equally flawed. But I worry that that enters the conversation in an even deeper way because of a candidacy like Justin Amash's. He is someone who voted. He's, I think, the only non-Democrat in the House who voted for Trump's impeachment. He left the Republican Party over Trump. He obviously thinks Trump is a menace and a danger. Is his candidacy not an extravagance that we cannot afford? I mean, I obviously think so. I think that what he's doing seems, you know, wildly irresponsible in a situation when you're coming into an election that is going to determine whether America continues to be in any sense a liberal democracy um, or really whether it implodes into some sort of Mad Max hellscape as it seems to be on the verge of doing right now. I mean, it's just the existential stakes of this election could not be higher. I cannot imagine anybody thinking that there, I mean, to me, the way I sometimes think about it is like, you know, milk, I don't like to, I don't like to drink a glass of milk, right? I would rather drink almost anything else. But if somebody offers me a choice between a glass of milk and, you know, drinking from a sewer stuffed with the corpses of rats that have died, I'm not going to say, well, I don't like either of those things. Could you have, could you have made the choice any subtler than that, Michelle? I think I think you really made that a hard one. You I know? mean, but to me, to me, that really is what the choice looks like—a way of thinking that it is um, like morally superior to 
cast your vote for someone that you see as kind of morally impeccable without thinking at all or kind of with disclaiming any sort of consequences of that vote? I would make the point that if we voted in a national popular vote, I think that Michelle's concerns would be far more salient. But the fact that we do still use the Electoral College Yes, I think that there is a serious consideration that people who live in honest-to-God swing states are going to have to give to the question of whether they would rather have a pure candidate or somebody who is pure like Amash, as opposed to Biden, who is, you know, to use Michelle's uh, suggestion, sort of the milk candidate here versus Trump, right? I mean, I think if you live in, I don't know, let's say Arizona, I think if you live in Arizona, you do have to think very carefully about how you're casting this vote, your vote this time, because your vote could decide the whole election, right? For me, sitting in Connecticut, Connecticut is not voting for Donald Trump. I don't have any qualms about voting for Justin Amash and voting my conscience, because I just, I don't think that Trump's going to get anywhere close to Joe Biden in the state and put it in play. Um, You know, in 2016, in Virginia, I did a lot of analysis before I went to the polls and voted and before I decided to, you know, sort of throw my lot in with Gary Johnson publicly. And I just could not see any way that Hillary Clinton was going to win Virginia by less than five points. And if you go back and you look at the results, that's basically what happened. And so, you know, I I really honestly couldn't have voted for Hillary Clinton. Um, I could vote for Joe Biden if I were in a state that was very, very close. I probably would. But you're not going to in Connecticut? I'm not. What's the point? I mean, he's going to win the state anyway, so I should vote for. So, in my view, I should vote for the person that best reflects my values, even if there's somebody else on the ticket who I think is okay, and then somebody else who I think is pretty abysmal. Right. You're going. You're going to avail yourself of the luxury of Connecticut, in other words. Yes. Well, I mean, that's that's what those of us living in Fairfield <laughs> County generally like to do. Um, we like to avail ourselves of luxuries. And uh, <laughs> while I am sitting here talking to you from a two bedroom rented apartment, there is a luxury that Fairfield County affords me. And it, it is this one. So, yes, I suppose I will be. Let's leave the discussion there. Liz, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing with us your expertise and your candor. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. After the break to Zoom or not to Zoom. Michelle and I have mixed feelings about this unavoidable new presence in our lives. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? You're not slowing down, so your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a golf plan. Lincoln Financial has the products to help protect and grow your financial future. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker-dealer affiliate, Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc., 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast, it's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online, is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, Plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short. That's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. Hello, can you hear me now? It's like, it's not doing anything when I click it. Let me see if I can cut and paste it.
Zoom video conferencing was once the domain of enterprise and techie types, but seemingly everyone's doing it these days, from middle school teachers and imams to doulas and drinking buddies. We record most of the podcast on another platform, but since the medium is the message, we're Zooming today. It's something that tens of millions of Americans have learned to do since the start of the coronavirus pandemic. I should plug my headphones into my phone, right? No, it's connecting. It, it kicked me off and now it's connecting. And see, see, this is what bugs me. It's weird. It says Frank Bruni, but it's black. I can see Frank. <laughs> I can see myself in the little corner up there. It's nice to see you, Michelle, but I also kind of hate it. Not, not Zooming with you, but Zooming at all. It's good for work, but I'm starting to think it's bad for the soul. So first of all, Frank, I literally can't see you. <laughs> but um, but I, yeah, okay, now I can see you. Um, I feel like every new technological innovation from Facebook onward, my reaction is always, why would anyone ever do that? Um, you know, I'm like the chronic late adopter. And obviously, I I hate these tools but I actually find myself feeling occasionally comforted by them. I mean, on the one hand, they're such poor substitutes for normal human contact. But as time goes on and on and on, there is something about seeing the faces of people that you really miss that I find, you know, really both comforting and incredibly bittersweet at the same time. I do say that when this is all over, I never want to do this again. I mean, not the pandemic. I never want to see, um, you know, I never want to see this app again ever in my life. But even even though you say that, it sounds like it has for the moment worn you down. You see, I've, I've traveled the opposite arc. Michelle, did you ever read one of my favorite funny essays it was by Nora Ephron, and it was called The Six Stages of Email. Did you happen to ever read that or do you remember it? No, no, but I will. Well, I mean, it's very much like the way I feel about Zoom. She talked about how the first stage of email, she was going back to when email was as new to us as Zoom is now. And she was saying the first stage is infatuation, like, wow, look at this amazing new tool. Who knew you could do things this way? Um, and the last stage was basically, that's it, I'm going back to the telephone. <laughs> and that, and that's where I am. I'm literally telling people who want to do Zoom cocktails, okay, I've had enough of that, I'm going back to the telephone. And I think, I think one of the points in the journey where I, with it just where I just got lost is I think I was zoom cocktailing for the third time that week or maybe the third time that night don't judge don't well, judge no I think you have a more you have a more um, active social life than I do clearly I mean I feel like I tried this a couple of times <laughs> I, I feel like I tried it a couple of times at the beginning and it was you know at a time when people were I don't know maybe clinging more and I was clinging more to, you know, kind of a vestige of what my life was like before. But at this point, that's all just sort of faded away. But I just, I, just, well, I, may, I don't know that I have a more active social life. Maybe I just have a more active drinking life, which is nothing to be <laughs> proud of. But I would just, there would be that moment in the Zoom cocktail. And I got to say, I can't even believe the phrase Zoom cocktail is now a neologism or in our, in, our, in our culture, where everyone would raise their glasses and I would realize there's no clink. There's no glass to clink to. Mm -hmm. It's a toast without a sound. And I kind of feel like that's a metaphor for all that Zoom doesn't do for us. Well, the question then is, you know, is is the kind of tiny simulacrum of normal social life a comfort or is it just a reminder of all that we've lost? Well, that's sort of like is the 
cup half empty or half full. And I guess, <laughs> I guess when it comes to Zoom, for me, the Zoom is half empty. You know, the one thing that we have done a couple of times, and I guess that we're still doing, is Zoom playdates with our kids' friends. And it's really strange. Um, sometimes they sort of will get it and fall into a rhythm and be holding their toys up to the camera and inventing some sort of scenario. But oftentimes you hear, you know, five-year-olds saying, what should we talk about? Or else kind of having no idea of how to end it. Um, you know, they sort of don't have any of the like the social skills to say, okay, I've got to go by. They'll just sort of, you know, burn out and close the computer. You're actually edging up to the one thing I do like about Zoom. Which what is that? No, oh, that you can just end it. If you don't have a premium account and you're having a conversation with more than just two of you, and I don't have a premium account or whatever it's called, zip, Zoom cut you off. Zoom decided that's the amount of socializing you're entitled to, and now it's time to move on. I like that part of Zoom. You know, I, I think about all the times in, all the times before this, when I was invited to, you know, whatever, like a, a book party, a drinks thing, and I was always like, uh I don't know. I'm so tired. I have to get up. You know, I, I kind of regret every social event that I flaked out on for the past however many years. Since you mentioned Zoom cocktails, are there cocktails that you think pair especially well with Zoom or Skype or Facebook Live? We shouldn't we shouldn't leave the other platforms and options out of this. And I should just be clear, we're using Zoom as a particular and a metaphor. So I, you know... I guess, again, like in keeping with the lassitude of everything, I've just been drinking wine, um, you know, as opposed to kind of anything that takes two or more steps. How about you? Um, I have to admit, uh, I'm right with you there. I kind of uh, a an ambient laziness has entered and enveloped my life. And that extends to, yeah, if you can just pour it straight from a bottle. But I have to say many of the people I have Zoom cocktailed or Zoom unhappy houred with or whatever you want to say, um, I've noticed that I really appreciate it when they have a colorful drink in hand for the same reason you like color in a TV program or a movie. So um, although I'm sort of not holding up my end of the deal with my, you know, rather dull, uh, vapid glass of white wine, when someone holds something up to the camera that looks like an Aperol spritz or, you know, God bless them, a tequila sunrise, um, I have to say it's a mood, it's a mood lifter. Okay, so Frank, I have a question for you. Do you think there will be Zoom cocktails on bar menus when we can finally be in bars again? <laughs> I think the bars that have almost gone out of business as people zoomed are going to want that syllable as far from their consciousness <laughs> as they can push it. So Michelle, we always end uh, with a recommendation. I'm going to I'm going to put the big question on you. What is the recommendation that someone should uh should derive from our lament? I guess the recommendation would be when this is all over, um don't take for granted your chances to do all the things that we're currently faking on Zoom. <laughs> so the recommendation is remember the things you missed and relish them and never take them for granted again. Is that right? Or just go to more bars is a different way to say that. <laughs> all right. Go to more bars. <laughs> That's our show this week. Thanks for listening. And thanks again to Liz Mayer for joining us. Make sure to read her latest op-ed in The Times. Is Justin Amash a threat to Biden or to Trump? Also, if you want to read that essay by Nora Ephron, again, it's called 
the six stages of email. If you're liking what you're hearing, leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. Doing that helps other people find the show. The Argument is produced by James T. Green for Transmitter Media and edited by Sarah Nix. Our executive producer is Greta Cohn. We had help from Tyson Evans, Phoebe Lett, Paula Schumann, and Makile Teodori. Our theme was composed by Allison Leighton-Brown. Enjoy your Zoom happy hours, and we'll see you back here next week. I hope people also, I hope people also understand that there's an element of sarcasm, right? So, yeah. We here at The Argument are all about sarcasm. This is Sarcasm Central.